Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 33, the book of Revelation, chapters 15 and 16. We got most of the way through Revelation chapter 15 last week, and we're going to finish it up today. And we're going to get started on chapter 16. Now, because chapter 15 is so short, we're going to reread it in its entirety to begin our, our study for today. So, please open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 15. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it will start on page 1546. 1546. Revelation chapter 15. Then I saw another sign in heaven, a great, a wonderful one, seven angels with the seven plagues that are the final ones. Because with them God's fury is finished. Now I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire. Those defeating the beast, its image and the number of its name, were standing by the sea of glass, holding harps which God had given to them. They were singing the song of Moshe, son of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and wonderful are the things you have done, Adonai, God of heaven's armies. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Adonai, who will not fear and glorify your name? Because you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous deeds have been revealed. And after this I looked, and the sanctuary, that is, the tent of witness in heaven, was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, and they were dressed in clean, bright linen. They had golden belts around their chests. And one of the four living beings gave to the seven angels seven gold bowls filled with the fury of God, who lives forever and ever. Then the sanctuary was filled with smoke from God's Shekinah, that is, from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels had accomplished their purpose. Now remembering that what we're reading in Revelation is a series of visions that God gave to John while he was in forced exile on the island of Patmos, then we also need to follow that his visions alternate between what's happening in heaven and what's happening on earth. And getting it straight on where these actions are happening is critical to understanding this book. The things that happen in heaven are in some ways more difficult to think about because since as living physical beings we exist in a world controlled by time and space, everything for us operates in a sequence. First this, then that, then what comes next, and so on. But in heaven, the concept of sequence is more challenging to mentally picture because there is no such thing as time in that mysterious spiritual dimension that all believers count on eventually winding up in. In other words, our standard con conceptions of the past and the present and the future don't exist there. There is no dynamic of what comes first, then second, then third, and so on. It's as though everything that has happened or ever will happen in heaven happens all at once. I have no illusions that this is a great definition of how things occur in heaven. But it's about the best that I can do when using my finite mind to try to understand and explain the infinite, the infinite. Now further, we must always be careful about how to understand the objects and the beings 
that the Scriptures speak about that are in heaven. By definition, the spiritual world does not and cannot contain physical things. Heaven is 100% spiritual in nature. It's invisible to the human eye. While earth and all of its creatures and objects are always physical in nature. So when we read of thrones and harps and smoke and a temple and more in heaven, God has given John visions of physical forms that represent the invisible spiritual forms that actually exist in heaven. Physical forms that he stands a better chance of comprehending and then communicating to others, like to us. The vision recorded in chapter 15 takes place in heaven. So everything we read about objects and people is to be taken as representative. And what we see is seven angels that have each been given a bowl that contains a judgment in it that will in turn be poured out upon the earth and its inhabitants. Thus Christianity has labeled these the seven bold judgments. So now we've had the seven sealed judgments, each of the seven representing one of the seven seals that sealed a scroll that God handed to the Lamb. Then we had the seven trumpet judgments, each judgment announced by a trumpet or shofar blown by an angel. And now the seven bold judgments. And add it all together, you math wizards, what do we get? 21. There is some scholarly debate about whether the seven bold judgments are judgments numbers 15 through 21. But I don't see evidence to think it's not. Especially when verse 1 says, these are the final judgments. Now especially from verse 2 forward, we need to picture that everything that's happening is happening in connection with God's heavenly temple. God's heavenly temple. Thus the representative figures of people and objects that are spoken of can be much better understood by visualizing their physical counterparts inside God's earthly temple, the one that existed in Jerusalem. Going back to the teaching of the Torah, I introduced you to the principle of the reality of duality. It is that what happens in heaven in the spiritual world has a counterpart that happens on earth in the physical world. However, the objects and the beings spoken of in heaven are perfect and they're complete as compared to the inferior and incomplete counterparts that exist on earth. So what happens on earth can be said to be but a shadow of what happens in heaven. So beginning in verse 2, we're reading about the goings-on in heaven. And specifically in relation to the heavenly temple or tabernacle, then we can understand the sea of glass mixed with fire in heaven as something that must also exist in some form or another on earth. And indeed, Although in John's day, the, 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 the time he was writing Revelation, at least, the Jerusalem temple lay in ruins at the hand of the Romans. Nonetheless, the object that the sea of glass in heaven represents is that giant water laver that was present in the temple grounds of the earthly temple when it stood intact. And in fact, that giant water laver 
went by the name of the sea due to its enormous amount of water that it held. So while the earthly labor held water, the heavenly labor held what more resembled glass mixed with fire. In both cases, the contents of the laver was used to purify. The mention of people in heaven holding harps also has its earthly counterpart, the Levite musicians who played harps at ritual ceremonies at the Jerusalem temple. So very likely, these departed souls in heaven playing harps were the souls of Levites who died trusting Yeshua as their Messiah. Now continuing on that same theme. There were people in heaven, again spiritual souls in actuality, that were singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. We discussed this last time. I only wish to reiterate that the song of Moses and the song of the lambs are just one song. And it is sung to the Father. Called God of Heaven's Armies, King of the Nations. In that song. This is not a song being sung to Moses or to the Lamb. Christ. If anything, I can't say this is happening, but with any, if it's anything at all, we have Moses and Yeshua joining in with the others who are singing the words of praise to the Father. When the temple stood, Levite singers would sing the song of Moses as taken from Deuteronomy 32 as part of regular temple liturgy. But now, since both Moses and Yeshua, the Lamb, were mediators for Israel. Then the song is described as the song of Moses and the Lamb. However, to be clear, this is not the same song as the song of Moses that's taken from Deuteronomy. It's a new song, a victory song, the one we're reading in verses 3 and 4 that both mediators of Israel are mentioned. And if one wishes to get technical about preeminence of persons, depending on who's mentioned first, we find Moses gets top billing, interestingly, in this song. And it indicates their mutual continuing relevance and importance to the redemption plan and to the redemption process. Now verse 5, take a look at it. Everybody take a look at this. Verse 5 gets a little bit confusing the way we typically find it translated in most Bibles. Although, in this case, the complete Jewish Bible has done a pretty good job of it. I want to take a quick look at a couple of other Bible versions to see how they deal with verse 5. In the King James... We read, And after that I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. Now there's a confusing sentence. In the NAS, New American Standard, After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. So you see this sentence and it's like, what? I don't understand what that means. See, in reality... The King James Version and the New American Standard translations are actually more true to the Greek. This is the way the Greek is best translated. The complete Jewish Bible is what's called a dynamic translation that attempts to explain what is meant versus merely translating words. And in our case, the difficult part is trying to understand what this temple of the tabernacle of the testimony means. Now looking at the Greek helps us right away. Okay, The Greek word being translated to temple is naos. Naos. It is speaking not of the temple in general, but rather only of the inner sanctum. 
That is, those two inner inner chambers inside the temple called the Holy Place and the Holy of Holies. Taken together, these two inner chambers are usually called the sanctuary in the Bible, which is how the complete Jewish Bible deals with it. So this verse is really saying that the sanctuary portion of the temple complex in heaven was opened. And in verse 6, out of the sanctuary portion came those seven angels with their seven bowls. Now to clarify, the earthly counterpart of what is being described as occurring in heaven is speaking of the holy place and the holy of holies in the Jerusalem temple. These seven angels were told are dressed in clean white linen garments with golden belts around their chests. Obviously, spiritual beings like angels, especially when they're in heaven, don't wear physical garments of white linen or anything else. However, since the heavenly temple is representative of its earthly counterpart, Levitical priests are required to wear clean white linen garments with a belt around their waists, especially when serving inside the sanctuary. In fact, on the one day per year that the high priest is allowed inside the Holy of Holies, what day of the year is that? Hmm? Yom Kippur, that's right. He does not wear his usual colorful garment. He must wear a simple white garment. The white color indicates purity, oftentimes also humility. So in verse 7, one of the four living beings who surrounds God's throne and goes with him wherever he goes as the protectors of his incomparable holiness gives these bowls full of God's ferocious judgment to these seven angels. And again we see the connection between the heavenly and the earthly temples as bowls were a normal and customary part of ritual performed by priests in the temple service. Now I think that since these seven angels emerged from the sanctuary, it would probably be correct to refer to them as some sort of angelic priests. That's my words. We know from other passages that angels have a hierarchy of some sort. And perhaps those who serve God in his heavenly temple are a special class. Perhaps. Which for our purposes I'm going to call priests. Now finally in verse 8, we're told that the heavenly sanctuary was filled with the smoke of God's glory. I think the complete Jewish Bible has it better described as the smoke of God's Shekinah. Now we have seen a similar phenomenon occur within the earthly temple. Okay, Listen to this passage from 2 Chronicles about something that happened back in the days of King Solomon and it is so very similar to what John is being shown in his vision. This comes from 2 Chronicles 5, uh, 6 all the way to 6, 1. King Shlomo, King Solomon, and the whole community of Israel who had assembled in his presence were in front of the ark. They were sacrificing sheep and oxen in numbers beyond counting or recording. The Kohanim, the priests, brought the ark for the covenant of Adonai into its place inside of the sanctuary of the house. What's the sanctuary? Holy place. Holy place and holy of holies. Okay into the especially holy place, the holy of holies, under the wings of the karvim, the the cherubim. For the karvim spread out their wings over the place of the ark, 
covering the ark and its poles from above. Now the poles were so long that their ends could be seen extending from the ark into the sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside, and they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets Moshe put in there at Horeb when Adonai made the covenant with the people of Israel at the time of their leaving Egypt. And when the Kohanim, again the priests, came out of the holy place, for all the priests who were present had consecrated themselves, they did not keep to their divisions. Also the Levites, who were the singers, all of them, Asaph, Haman, Yerutun, and their sons and relatives, dressed in fine linen, with cymbals and lutes and lyres, they stood on the east side of the altar. And with them, 120 priests sounding trumpets. Then when the trumpeteers and the singers were playing in, con- in concord, they heard harmoniously praising and thanking, the, uh, to be heard harmoniously praising and thanking Adonai, and they lifted their voice together with the trumpets and the cymbals and other musical instruments to praise Adonai. For he is good, for his grace continues forever. Then the house, the house of Adonai was filled with a cloud. So that because of the cloud, the priests could not stand up to perform their service. For the glory of Adonai filled the house of God. Notice that we have the Levite musicians, the singing, the priests, the heavy involvement of the holy place and the holy of holies, the sanctuary, and God's presence in the form of a cloud that filled the sanctuary such that the priests couldn't perform their normal temple service. Now, although in the description of the heavenly temple it was smoke, that was said to represent God's glory and fill the heavenly sanctuary. Just remember, smoke is being used as a figurative term. Smoke and a cloud, they perform the same function. They obscure or they hide something from the sight of humans. And just as the priests And Solomon's day could not perform their service for God until the cloud of God's presence left that sanctuary. They couldn't do anything inside that sanctuary, inside of it. We read in Revelation 15.8 that no one, that is no departed soul or any angel in heaven, could enter the heavenly sanctuary until those seven angelic priests with their bowls filled with God's wrath had completed their assigned tasks. A major point to notice is that when God decides to act, not even the heavenly angels can do anything but observe and obey. Let's move on to Revelation 16. And by the way, here is another case in which a man-made chapter break obscures the natural flow of this this narrative of Revelation. There should have been no chapter break at all at this point. None. To help us then to recover the natural flow. I'm going to start reading from chapter 15 verse 8 and then just continue to the end of chapter 16. Chapter 16 of Revelation on page 1547 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. I'm going to start at Revelation 15.8. Then the sanctuary was filled with smoke from God's Shekinah, that is, from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels had accomplished their purpose. And I heard a loud voice from the sanctuary, saying to the seven angels, Go, pour out on the earth the seven bowls of God's fury. So the first one went and poured his bowl onto the earth, and disgusting and painful sores appeared on all the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second one poured out his bowl into the sea. It became like the blood of a dead person. Everything living in the sea died. The third one poured out his bowl into the rivers and springs of water. They turned to blood. Then I heard the angel of the waters say, O HaKadosh, the Holy One 
who is and was, you are just in these judgments of yours. They poured out the blood of your people and your prophets, so you have made them drink blood. They deserve it. Then I heard the altar say, Yes, Adonai God of heaven's armies, your judgments are true and just. The fourth one poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was permitted to burn people with fire. And people were burned by this intense heat, yet they cursed the name of God, who had the authority over these plagues, instead of turning from their sins to give him glory. And the fifth one poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom grew dark. And people gnawed on their tongues from the pain. Yet they cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and sores, and they did not turn from their sinful deeds. The sixth one poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water dried up in order to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw three unclean spirits that looked like frogs. They came from the mouth of the dragon, from the mouth of the beast, and from the mouth of the false prophet. They are miracle-working, demonic spirits, which go out to the kings of the whole inhabited world to assemble them for the war of the great day of Adonai Sefaot. Look, I'm coming like a thief. How blessed are those who stay alert and keep their clothes clean so they won't be walking naked and be publicly put to shame. And they gathered the kings to the place which in Hebrew is called Har Megiddo, Armageddon. The seventh one poured out his bowl onto the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done! There were flashes of lightning, voices, peals of thunder. There was a massive earthquake such as never occurred since mankind's been on earth. So violent was the earthquake. The great city was split into three parts. The cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babel the Great and made her drink the wine from the cup of his raging fury. Every island fled. No mountains were to be found. Huge 70-pound hailstones fell on people from the sky. But the people cursed God for the plague of hail that it was such a terrible plague. So chapter 16 just continues now with what's going on in the heavenly temple. But now it's going to also begin to incorporate what's going to happen on earth. Now the heavenly sanctuary is emptied of everyone except God's presence, His glory, His Shekinah. With these seven angelic priest angels having been sent out of the sanctuary with their bowls of judgment in hand in preparation to carry out their task of administering God's justice. So verse 1 of chapter 16 says that a loud voice came from inside the emptied sanctuary and ordered the seven angels to immediately begin pouring out their bowls onto the earth. Who was in the sanctuary? Only God. It had to be His voice. Now, there is room to allow that it could have been one of the four living beings that goes wherever God goes. But saying that is only acknowledging a pretty speculative possibility because there's nothing in these verses to hint that this was the case. Well, in first century Jewish thought, every form of created life had a guardian angel. And Different groups of angels were responsible for different activities and even had specified areas where they were assigned to operate. So I want to throw out something rather fascinating for you to just take it as you see fit. In a pseudo-epigraphical work 
from around the second century called the, Temp- uh, the Testament of Solomon. Yes, the same Solomon that is King David's son. The author of this book names seven angels of punishment or wrath that he says exists. The first one is Kushiel, which means the rigid one of God. The second one is Lahathiel, the flaming one of God. The third one is Shaftiel, the judge of God. The fourth one is Makatiel, that translates to plague of God. The fifth one is Hutriel, rod of God. The sixth is Pusiel, meaning fire of God. And the seventh and final angel of punishment is Roxiel, the wrath of God. Now, I can't account for the veracity of this as far as to whether it's true or not. The consensus is, among scholars, is this was written by a believer in Christ, either a Jew or a Gentile. Hard to tell. The Testament of Solomon is not a book that is part of the Jewish or Christian canon. However, that doesn't automatically make it a lie or a fairy tale. I'll let you be the judge. I want to shift our focus for a few minutes. I want to make a pertinent point that will likely cause discomfort among some of you, maybe even a little anger. But it's important that it's said. In the Old Testament, when the term pour out God's wrath, when that term is used, it is meant to include not only those who persecute God's people, but it's also meant to include His own people who are rebellious and covenant breakers. Do not ever think that God's own people only means Hebrews in the physical sense. The church has long ago decided that Gentile believers are also God's people, although usually from a spiritual, not so much a physical sense, and when taken in the proper balance, that's correct. So believers, Jew or Gentile, I exhort you to listen very carefully to these passages in the Bible that I'm about to read to you. Listen to this. Ezekiel, there's several here. Ezekiel 14, verses 21 through 23. For here is what Adonai Elohim says. Even if I inflict my four dreadful judgments on Jerusalem, sword, famine, wild animals, and plagues, to eliminate both its humans and its animals, there will still be left a remnant in it to be brought out, including both sons and daughters. And when they come out to you, and you see their way of life and how they act, then you will be consoled over the calamity I have brought upon Jerusalem, over everything I have done to it. Yes, they will console you, when you see their way of life and how they act, and you will understand that it was not without good reason that I did what I did to Jerusalem, says Adonai Elohim. Jeremiah 10.25 Pour out your anger on the nations that do not acknowledge you, also on the families that do not call on your name. For they have consumed Yaakov, Jacob, Israel. Consumed him, finished him off, laid waste to his home. Zephaniah 3, 1 through 9. Woe to her who is filthy and defiled. Woe to the tyrant city. She would not listen to the voice, would not receive correction. She didn't trust in Adonai, didn't draw close to her God. Her leaders there with her are roaring lions. Her judges desert wolves. You don't leave even a bone for tomorrow. Her prophets are reckless. They're treacherous men. Her priests profane the holy. They do violence to the Torah. 
Adonai who is righteous is there among them. He never does anything wrong. Every morning he renders his judgment. Every morning without fail. Yet the wrongdoer knows no shame. I have cut off nations. Their battlements are ruins. I have made their streets ruins. No one walks in them. Their cities are destroyed, abandoned, unpeopled. I said, well surely now you will fear me. Now you will receive my correction. So that her place will not be cut off by all the punishments I've honored. But no, they only grew all the more eager to be corrupt in all that they do. Therefore wait for me, says Adonai, for the day when I rise to witness against you, when I decide to assemble the nations, to gather kingdoms together, to pour on them my indignation, all my furious anger for all the earth will be consumed in the fire of my passion. For then I will change the peoples so that they will have pure lips to call in the name of Adonai, all of them, and serve him with one accord. And now a well-known New Testament passage that sums up exactly what all that we have been reading about portends. In this passage in Matthew, Christ is speaking. And here's what he says. Matthew 7, 21-23 Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who do what my Father in heaven wants. On that day, many of them are going to say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we expel demons in your name? Didn't we perform miracles in your name? Then I'm going to tell them to their faces, this is Christ speaking, I'm going to tell them to their faces, I never knew you. Get away from me, you workers of lawlessness. Heavy hitting stuff. Now a question for you. Who are these workers of lawlessness that Yeshua says he doesn't know? A better term that it captures exactly what lawlessness means in this case is Torahlessness. I mean, think about it. Think about what's being said here. He's saying, you guys are lawless. What law are we, do we suppose Christ is referring to? That if we shun it, he's going to disown us. Roman law? Think that's what he was talking about? How about American law? Our good American law? Nah. European Union law? No? Sharia law. Don't think so. Naturally, it's the only law that meant anything to Yeshua. And ultimately ought to mean much of anything to us. God's laws. The law of Moses. It's the only law in the Bible. So workers of lawlessness, and you can go to any version, by the way, and find those words, are those who are disobedient to the covenant. And disobedience to the covenant has played a front and center role throughout the last several chapters of Revelation. As well as in the books of Daniel and Ezekiel, on, upon which much of Revelation depends. And what we learn is that when God pours out His wrath upon the earth, both the oppressors of God's people and those who consider themselves as God people, as God's people, but in fact are rebellious and are unrepentant covenant breakers, are going to suffer through it. Now we're going to talk about this a little more when we get to chapter 18. And we read of God's plea to his people to come out of her so that they, we, too, don't suffer from the plagues he's going to inflict upon this planet and its wicked inhabitants. Now, since God is a God of patterns, we're going to see a very similar pattern 
emerge in the carrying out of these bold judgments that we saw earlier in chapter 8 concerning the trumpet judgments. That is, whereas each blow of the trumpet set forth a judgment upon a particular segment of our planet, the land, the, the saltwater seas, the, the freshwater sources, the sky, so we find the same thing in chapter 16 with the bold judgments. The first bold judgment, verse 2, is poured out on the land and upon the land-dwelling creatures. Disgusting and painful sores broke out on all who wore the mark of the beast and those who worship his image. God's own people are warned back in Revelation 14 not to take on the mark of the beast merely to survive. So this fits well with what we just discussed. Let's go back to that in Revelation 14. These verses 11 through 13. And the smoke and the smoke from their tormenting goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night. Those who worship the beast and his image and those who receive the mark of its name. This is when perseverance is needed on the part of God's people. For those who observe his commandments and exercise Yeshua's faithfulness. So next I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, how blessed are the dead who die united with the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, now they can rest from their efforts. For the things they have accomplished will follow along with them. See, we learn that covenant breakers and rebellious believers will suffer just as the pagans do for wearing the mark of the beast. Now recall that while on the surface, the mark, 666, is said to control all ability to buy and to sell, in fact, such a mark carries a far more ominous meaning to God. It means your allegiance to Satan. So God's people cannot take on that mark as a means to save their lives or their families' lives and then say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we expel demons in your name? Didn't we perform miracles in your name? Won't work. See, the time of the reign of the Antichrist is going to be more horrible than any time ever known on earth in all of history. And God is not going to accept as a legitimate excuse, a parent making the choice to take on the mark in the name of providing for his or her children and then saying, but I only did it as an act of love, God. In reality, my Lord, my allegiance remains with you. One of my favorite films is called The Kingdom of Heaven. And despite the name, it really isn't a religious movie. It's about a young man who lost his young pregnant wife to suicide and then lost his way. He wanted to go to Jerusalem to seek forgiveness and, and, and from God. And in a very strange set of circumstances, he became a knight for the Crusaders, and he went on to defend Jerusalem from the Muslims led by the famous Islamic general, Saladin. And in one scene, it's always stuck with me. When it seemed certain that all was lost, and in a day, Saladin and his hordes were going to break down the walls of the holy city, enter it, massacre every Christian in it, the Catholic priest of Jerusalem recommended that the people convert to Islam now and repent later. I have little doubt that similar advice is going to be given the world over from overwhelmed, emotionally drained, biblically challenged pastors and priests to their wholly ignorant flocks and congregations. Accept the mark of the beast now, 
they will say, for the love of your family and friends. And then repent later. Because God will understand because He's a God of love. Our Lord has taken every opportunity to tell us that such an attitude of His believers will be rejected as unworthy of salvation. And to attempt such a strategy is going to result in the same destiny for those as for those who never believed. This tactic of claiming allegiance to God but behaving in the opposite way and ignoring God's commandments has got a name. It's called lawlessness by Christ. Yeshua has warned us that suffering and death may well be the price to be paid in order to follow Him. See, we in the West, we really have not experienced such a horrific choice. So we seem immune to the suffering and murder of Christians in Africa and in the Middle East that are just occasional blips in the news. In fact, the prospect doesn't seem like much more than a distant or hypothetical warning, unlikely to happen, that merely means to emphasize how seriously we need to take our relationship with Jesus. But at some point in the not-so-distant future, according to John's apocalypse, oppression for our trust in Messiah Yeshua will become the law of the Antichrist. And the world's population is going to join in carrying it out. Just as some of the German citizenry helped carry out the Holocaust that murdered six million Jews in death camps. So the precedent's already been set. This is not going to be anything new. Just the scope of it. This first bold judgment reminds us of the plague of boils upon the Egyptians that we find in Exodus chapter 9. Again, our Lord is a Lord of patterns. So it shouldn't be surprising to find a similar plague once again striking the oppressors of God's people for their stubborn refusal to submit to the God of Israel. Now, interesting, isn't it? That since these people are going to take a mark on their skin in order to buy and to sell and to show their allegiance to Satan, that God is going to respond by filling their bodies with his own marks. The marks of visible sores. Marks of God's judgment in retribution for wearing the mark of the beast. In many ways, this affliction of painful sores fulfills the same intent as the law of Sarat. Sarat, often misidentified in lepro as leprosy by Bible translators, is a skin condition caused by God upon a person who he has deemed as inwardly impure and so just worthy of shame. It exposes that person for who he or she really is. The idea is that while one might think to look so pious on the outside while harboring godlessness on the inside, God sees the heart. And when he deems the inner spiritual condition is too unacceptable, he will afflict that person with a highly visible and gross skin condition that essentially marks him or her as spiritually unclean. In verse 3, The second angel of punishment pours out his bowl upon the salt water seas. The water became like the blood, we're told, of a dead person. And so every bit of life in the sea died. Now the blood of a dead person becomes thick and coagulated. While this is similar to the Exodus plague upon the Egyptians, it's not identical. Okay? In that it was the fresh water that was affected in Egypt 
And it was affected because it was more the color of the water that seemed to make it undrinkable. But there is another aspect to this that Jewish believers that read John's Apocalypse, that, re- that read John's Apocalypse in his day, would have immediately latched upon. They would have got it. Right eye, just like that. It is that blood itself is forbidden to be eaten. And that a dead person represented the height of ritual impurity. So, as the salt water became blood-like, no Jew would continue fishing in it. And this is because they would consider this contaminated condition of the oceans as akin to the uncleanness of a corpse. Thus, in the first bowl judgment, when the sores on the skin of those who took the mark of the beast became like a person afflicted with Surat, and a person with Surat was highly unclean and could not even live among his family or society until it cleared up. Now the world's oceans. And so everything that came in contact with that water became impure and unclean at the hand of God. Bottom line, God has declared and physically marked all of humanity with his mark of skin sores and now he's marked the world's oceans as unclean by making them as contaminated with the blood of a dead person. It just doesn't get any worse. This is perhaps the harshest, most widespread judgment upon earth since the great flood. This second bold judgment is a much more serious plague than its trumpet judgment counterpart that also afflicted the salt water. And it's hard to tell just how much of the world's oceans shall be affected by it. We should notice that that while there are indeed striking similarities of the bold judgments to the trumpet judgments. The trumpet judgments affected limited, specified portions of the globe, but not all. The bold judgments seem to be universal in their effect. We will continue with the bold judgments and the final judgments of God next time.